0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We come before you uh, in humility and with open hearts asking for uh, your help as we come to your word. Would you teach us? um, As we just sang about the Holy Spirit, we ask for help by your spirit to understand these truths that we read. And not only understand them, but apply them to our lives. So we need your help and we pray now that you'd be glorified in our time together. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, welcome to FBC. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we just want to welcome you, especially the mamas in the house. Welcome to you, mothers, on this Mother's Day. Yeah, we can give a round of applause. We are grateful for you, and want to honor you and celebrate you. Amber shared with me this week um, this little, you know, uh, graphic, you know, meme thing online that talked about the different kinds of mothers, and I thought it was helpful. It talked about celebrating biological mothers, adoptive mothers, foster mothers, uh, spiritual mothers, single mothers, stepmothers, uh, grieving mothers, hopeful mothers. And of course, the grandmothers. We love you all. We honor you and celebrate you and pray your day. Today is just filled with joy. We're glad that you are here. I want to invite you, whether you're a mom or not, to turn to John 16 with me. Uh, verse 1, where we're going to be spending some time together as we continue our sermon series. Just walking through the gospel of John. And while you turn there, uh, you may have heard of the dramatic story of Alan Anderson in 1990. Alan went flying went for a plane ride with his father-in-law, Les Alan himself was not a trained pilot, he didn't know what he was doing but his father-in-law was and so they went out for just the second time for a nice flight uh, above the coast of Wales and while up there uh, something quite scary happened Les, his father-in-law, while they're in this small little plane, 30,000 feet above the air Les, at the controls, all of a sudden, alarmingly, slumps over the controls and becomes unresponsive. I know. (laughs) Alan thinks this is a joke at first, saying, you know, my father-in-law, you know, doing father-in-law things, uh, pranking me, but then soon realizes this was not a joke at all, and Alan had a heart attack, and he wasn't, or excuse me, Les had a heart attack and wasn't waking up. And so there, Alan is, 3,000 feet in the air, in this little plane that he doesn't know how to fly, with no one to help him, and he's got to figure out how in the world to get down. Now, he, he knows enough about the radio in the plane to work it and get out a distress call, a mayday to anyone listening, that he needs help and he has no idea what he's doing. I mean, could you imagine the fear... The, the suspense, the, the grief, you know, mixed into this moment of what happened to his father-in-law and now how in the world he was going to get out of this. Thankfully, that day, Alan in his little plane 3,000 feet in the air wasn't alone. There was another plane nearby that was close enough to hear the distress call on the radio and there was a pilot by the name of Robert Legg who just happened to be flying his plane above Wales that day as well and he was a a trained pilot and a pilot trainer himself and he hears the call and he locates Alan's plane there coasting as it's kind of dropping out of the sky and he comes alongside Alan's plane Robert that is he draws alongside him and he communicates on the radio with him. And he says, hey, Alan, I, I heard your distress call. My name's Robert, blah, blah, I'm the flight, flight pilot. I want you to look out to the, the right side of your plane. Do you see that other plane coming alongside you? Yes, that's me. I, I'm going to coach you out of this. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through this. So what I want you to do, I want you to look down to your right and you see that little airstrip down there, that stretch of landing uh, nearby. We're gonna start to coast down towards that, okay? How are we gonna do that? Just listen, let me, let me talk you through it. What I want you to do is grab the throttle. What's the throttle? here's what it looks like. He explains what it looks like. He says, okay, I want you to, you know, move this this way. I want you to look at your, you know, uh, your meters up front. I want you to tell me what number do you see on this one? Tells him the number. Okay, we're going to reduce the speed there. Okay, I want you to start to bank with me towards the right. And he walks him through the entire thing to a safe landing, all the way to the point where Alan lands. He says, okay, I want you to press the brakes. Here's where the brakes are. I want you to turn the plane off. You turn the key. That's how the engine's going to stop. You're going to see the emergency vehicles are already nearby. They're there to help you just wait there. Pretty remarkable true story. You can go Google it and read the whole transcript of their interaction. It's, it's fascinating how Alan lived to tell about this experience because Robert came alongside him in the air 3,000 feet and coached him through. Now, as we've been reading through the Gospel of John here, especially recently, Jesus has been telling his disciples that they're about to be in distress. And like Alan, 3,000 feet above the air in a plane that he doesn't know how to fly, they're going to be in some pretty difficult situations. But also like Alan, Jesus reminds his disciples that help is actually on the way, and they're not going to be doing this alone. They're going to have someone who's going to come alongside them, along the way and help. You heard it read aloud already, but look again with me at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16 as we begin the study. Jesus speaking says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So in the opening verses of chapter 16 here, you see the continuation, really, of this theme that we saw that ended chapter 15. If you were with us last week, uh, we talked about the heartwarming topic of the hatred of the world for the disciples. It was very, you know, very encouraging. How the world is going to hate the disciples, and because of their commitment to Jesus, they're going to face opposition. Jesus says he's he's preparing his followers for this reality so that when it comes, they're not going to be discouraged or disillusioned or unravel. He says here, what? They're going to put you out of the synagogue. He says, even some will seek to take your life. And then in verses four through six, he explains, hey, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you'll remember You're not going to be caught off guard. You're going to remember that I told you these things, and you'll be ready to face them. I know, it's really, it's it's a heavy word. And yet, there's good news here in chapter 16 as well. And the good news really comes in, especially in verse 7. Look at it again. After this, you know, preparation, this warning, hey, things are going to be hard, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here Jesus says, he, He's going away. As we know, He's heading to the cross. He's not far from the cross here in chapter 16, then the resurrection and the ascension back to the Father. But He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send to you an advocate, a helper who is none other than the Holy Spirit. So first point in the text, really, is Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. That's what he promises his disciples. See, we worship one God, the one true eternal creator, sovereign God of the universe, who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, of the, this is the doctrine of the Trinity that we celebrate and find in Scripture. Now, many of us have heard plenty uh, about the Father or about the Son. You know, we could talk about God the Father and maybe be able to say a few things about God the Son. But the Holy Spirit is maybe a little trickier for some of us. We've heard less about the Holy Spirit. He's like, a, you know, maybe a family member. We know he's in the family. We know he's important. Um, you know he's invited to all the events and such uh, but we're not entirely sure what he does some of us maybe feel that way about the Holy Spirit actually uh, pastor and author Francis Chan a number of years ago wrote a book called Forgotten God Um, and I think the title is interesting there because he's pointing out how often uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, maybe misunderstood in the church or forgotten exactly who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do so a few, a few just brief reminders as we go. First is, of course, the Holy Spirit is God. The third person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equal in glory and honor and majesty and divinity alongside the Father and the Son. And yet, distinct from the Father and the Son. Right? The Holy Spirit is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is a person... Not, not a force, okay, so we're not talking about like a, you know, again, Star Wars, you know, voodoo, kind of harness the new age magic and phew, that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person with a will. He speaks, he acts, he, again, comes alongside, like we talked about earlier. So we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, but, but a he, a person, Now we see the Holy Spirit at work in in various ways throughout the Old Testament. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you'd see the Holy Spirit come up in uh, the first pages of Genesis, for example. As God creates all things, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of creation. We see the Holy Spirit at work uh, anointing the prophets to bring the very words of God to the people of God. We see the Holy Spirit come upon uh, key leaders like kings or Uh, uh, judges in the history of Israel uh, anointing people for specific tasks at specific times, Joseph in Egypt for example so the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament was active and present and yet somewhat selective in, in how and where and when he shows up Jesus here though you see, is speaking of this kind of new age of the Spirit of God coming in a new way with his church. A time that the prophets of the Old Testament, like Joel chapter 2, especially pointed forward to when the Spirit of God will be poured out upon all people, all his people. Earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus is telling us about the Holy Spirit and he says there that the Holy Spirit will be with you to his disciples and he will be in you. So there's this idea of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every follower of Jesus. So there's this fundamental shift between the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in the Old Testament, showing up in certain times and certain places for certain purposes, and the Holy Spirit's presence and work in the New Testament, indwelling and empowering every follower of Jesus, all believers receiving the Spirit of God within them. Now, Jesus goes on and he tells us more about the Holy Spirit and what specifically the Holy Spirit came to do. We see this in the text. And a good place to start, really, is verse 7, where Jesus gives the Holy Spirit a title. He calls him something. You see in verse 7 what he names him or calls him? It says the Advocate. Or maybe your translation says the Helper will come. Or maybe your translation says the Counselor or the Comforter. Now there's a number of Greek, or excuse me, English words that are used to translate this one Greek word, which is the, the paraclete or the Parakletos in Greek, which meant simply one who comes alongside. In many many settings, it was used kind of in like a legal setting. Uh, If someone was in trouble legally in the ancient world on trial, a paraclete or the paracletos was one who would come alongside them in support, as a witness, to speak for them, with them, draw near to them in that time. Uh, The paracletos could be something like our friend Robert Legg, flight instructor, 3,000 feet in the air, drawing alongside Alan Anderson and coaching him through this difficult situation. Some sources even indicate that the Paracletos was a nautical term uh, in terms of, you know, on the Mediterranean in the ancient world, if there was a boat that was in trouble, it was going to sink or in crisis, uh, another ship, a bigger ship would be called to go alongside the smaller boat, tie onto it and help it navigate into the safety of the harbor. And that larger ship was named the Paracletos. You see, it was one who comes alongside so Jesus says, yes, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending an advocate, a helper, a comforter, a one to be with you in this way. Notice with me again, uh, the striking term, or excuse me, the striking claim Jesus makes in verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Now, that, we should stop there for a second and say, wait a minute, Right? are you sure Jesus <laughs> Jesus has been preparing the disciples for his departure and he says it's for your good that I'm going away notice it's to your advantage that I leave this is a good thing disciples I know there's grief in your heart and you're sad about me going to the cross and and uh, resurrection and ascension and all that but it's good for you that this happened they say what hold on pause in what way is it better for us that you leave? Think about how troubling that would have been for the disciples to hear. Uh, another pastor, J.D. Greer, wrote a book called Jesus Continued. And uh, the, the tagline to his book, or kind of the subtitle, is Why the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. Interesting title. Why the Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Do we believe that amen Amen. but i think some of us would say you know what i think if i had to choose like jesus flesh and blood in the room sitting in that chair right here with me versus the holy spirit in my heart indwelling me i i might take the flesh and blood jesus right here you know like i could see him and 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 touch him and i would know he's right there I'd, i'd prefer that and so maybe the disciples are thinking you know thanks jesus but can you just stay you know that'd be that'd be better for us or maybe have you ever thought like man if i just lived in the time of Jesus, and I actually saw Jesus do the miracles, and I actually, I heard him teach these amazing truths, and I walked alongside him. It would would be easier to believe. It would be easier for me to wrap my whole life around him if, if that was me there. Jesus is saying, "No, it's actually it's for your good that I go away. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit and His work in the world now is better for the disciples and future disciples than if He had remained." It's a big claim. So let's unpack this a little bit. Why? First, here J.D. Greer again. He writes about the coming of the Pentecost. He says this: Jesus birthed the Christian movement by sending His Spirit like a mighty rushing wind into His disciples. The place where they met shook with God's power. And as a result, they turned the world upside down. The first church was not primarily a study group, a self-discovery seminar, or a building program. It was a mighty movement of the Spirit that propelled Jesus' followers into the whole world, preaching the gospel. Following that Spirit, being filled by that Spirit, trying to keep up, but feeling like a kite in a hurricane. It's for your good, he says, that I'm going and sending the Spirit. Because the Spirit will come and his work will change the world. Now, Jesus not only tells us that the Holy Spirit will come, but he then tells his disciples what he will come and do. We can't cover a comprehensive study on the role of the Holy Spirit this morning. There's many things we could say about the Holy Spirit, how he gives life. He empowers us for ministry. He sanctifies the people of God. He unites the church. He distributes gifts within the church. I mean, we go on and on. Uh, I just want to focus in, though, on specifically what Jesus says in John 16. And look at verse 8, how he continues. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I know there's a lot in there, but if we had to summarize kind of this first point Jesus is making about what the Holy Spirit will come and do, we would say, well, the Holy Spirit convicts. It's the first... Thing Jesus points to the Holy Spirit convicts. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong. Maybe your translation says he will convict the world. Some commentators have a little bit of uh, difficulty translating this verb exactly, uh, the conviction piece. But when this verb for convict or prove the world to be in the wrong um, shows up elsewhere in the New Testament, it shows up 18 different times. And pretty much every time it's used to describe uh, this reality where sin is exposed, Um, sin is pointed out, brought to the light, shown for what it is, in hopes that the person would uh, come to repentance, that a a change would come about in their life. And so Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. In other words, he's going to convict the world of their sin, And point out their their guilt, uh, the reality of coming judgment, their lack of righteousness. In other words, our need for a savior. The Holy Spirit's going to come and impress upon our hearts the reality of our sin. Expose our sin before God and show us our need. And you see that he goes on to kind of explain some of the nuance of that in verses 9 through 11. Talking about sin and unbelief. Talking about righteousness. Talking about judgment, but, but I want you to think about how comforting this message would be in light of his coming departure and the great commission, right? Jesus is going to send his disciples out into all of the earth, Judea, Samaria, so to, to the ends of the earth. And yet he's reminding him, I'm not going with you in, in the way I've been with you so far right so so far in the past few years right they've been walking along with jesus and jesus has been teaching and he's been you know the religious leaders have been coming against him and he's been uh winning every argument right and making the religious leaders look silly and and jesus juking people and he's you know he's he's not losing his arguments and he's showing hey i'm I'm gonna you know show people to be in the wrong i'm gonna point people to the reality of scripture and what they're missing I'm, i'm gonna you know show them uh what they need to hear they're like, great, you know, if we're with Jesus, he's, he's going to do the heavy lifting, so to speak, and we're, you know, we're going to be all right. But now he's saying, I'm going away, and yet you have this call to go out and call men and women to follow Jesus and, and repent and believe the gospel. And so again, for them, like, wait, wait a second, how are we going to go and do this, Jesus, if you're not there? How is anyone going to believe and listen to us if they wanna, uh, you know, had such a hard time listening to you? How, we, how do we have any chance? And Jesus says, ah, again, you're not going alone. The advocate will come alongside you and continue my presence and my ministry. Much of which is convicting the world through their message. The Holy Spirit will come and convict on people's hearts the reality of sin and their lack of righteousness and coming judgment. Their need for a savior. Think about it. Now that rather than Jesus' ministry being in one place at one time, Through the presence of the Spirit, he will be at work wherever his church is, wherever his disciples are, wherever we go. That's part of why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is better for us, right? It's good that Jesus goes away because he sends his Spirit, and then he's at work wherever his people are at work. Every church throughout the world can be filled with the power and presence of God. I mean, think about the logistic nightmare it would be if Jesus was still walking the earth in flesh and blood today, the way he was in the first century. You know, we have like some big event coming up and we have to call corporate, you know, to try and schedule Jesus to be the speaker at our main event. Like, hey, I know Jesus is busy. He's got a full calendar. He'll only be at one place at one time. But like, we really need him to do like a West Coast tour or something. You know, he's like, I know he's over in you know Bangladesh or Australia. He's got you know at a big conference. We get it, but can we like, when can we fit him in? Is he free in in 2023? And uh, can I speak to your manager? Like, what do I need to do here? Yes, I'll hold. Okay, you you see what I'm saying? There'd be this logistic nightmare. But now, (laughs) through the Spirit, right? God's presence can be in every church, in all places throughout the world. It's good that he goes away and and is at work here, now, and at churches down the street preaching the gospel, and in the state over, and in other countries, and so on. Also, with this reality of uh, God's presence in convicting, bringing power to the message of the gospel... We have to realize that um, he can do what we can't do. Okay, so we have a role to play, right, in God's mission in the world. What's our job? Well, we, we love God. We love our neighbors. We share the gospel. We invite people. We, we teach the scriptures. We, we share the message with people. It's the Holy Spirit's job, then, to take that message and, and convict the hearts of people. Right, we, we can't convict we can't change hearts. We can't force, you know, transformation. We, we invite, we love, we share, but it's the Holy Spirit that has to come and bring the power, you could say. And, and, I, and I see this up close every week uh, as a pastor. You know, five years of being a lead, lead pastor now, I've seen this because every week we, we preach the gospel here. And we share the good news of Christ and the reality of sin and coming judgment because of our sin and our need to be rescued from sin and death and hell, our need to be reconciled to God who loves us. And every week we share that message and every week and every year we talk about the gospel and people every week uh, listen to that. And some of us hear that message and, uh, you know, it's kind of this like shoulder shrug, like, yeah, you know, what's, what's for lunch? Think about that. Like we're talking about these eternal realities of sin. And like we're going to stand before a holy God one day and have to give an account of our life. And none of us in our own merits are going to be justified before this God. And yet this God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him and forgiven of our sin and adopted into the family of God. These amazing eternal truths. And again, sometimes we hear that. And, like, hmm. and people go then about their business. And to so realize that, trying to be consistent and as clear as we can up front in preaching the gospel, but at the end of the day, I can't convict you. At the end of the day, I can't change your heart. I can't impress upon you that these things are actually true. It's only the Holy Spirit who can do that. It's only the Holy Spirit who can say, hey, this message, this this is actually for you. Isn't it so easy for us to deflect? You know, like, oh, this is is a cool message, pastor. I'm so glad they're here to listen to it. You know, or oh, I wish so-and-so would hear this. This is for them. I'm doing pretty good on this one, you know. (laughs) It's so easy for us to deflect. We, We need the Holy Spirit's help to impress upon our hearts. No, this is for you. Talk about your sin before the Lord. Talk about how you need to repent, and you need forgiveness, and you have lied, (laughs) and you have sinned, and you have cheated, and you have stolen, and you have uh, practiced idolatry, and you have tried to be your own God, and you need forgiveness. You have been immoral. You have hurt others. We go on and on, you, this is about you. You are guilty and need the grace of God. It's only the Holy Spirit who can impress that upon each of our hearts. This is for you. Now, it's like David and Bathsheba. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? You know, David, if you don't know the story, right, David's at home. He's supposed to be off at war, but he's at home, you know, I guess doing king things in his palace. And he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And he desires her, and so he has her come to his palace, and he basically forces himself upon her as the king, and, and she gets pregnant. And so he then tries to do the right thing, and he kills her husband. And he takes her as his own wife, and she has a child. And, but, um, you know, real heartwarming Sunday school story here that your kids are hearing about right now. Just kidding. Um, and, and yet... Yeah, it, there's kind of a, a process that he has to go through before he really experiences conviction. Think about it. Um, Nathan, the prophet, it says, comes to him afterwards. Okay, so he's, again, he's gotten this woman pregnant, killed her husband, taken her as his own wife, and then Nathan comes to him con- to confront him. You've done this great evil, is basically what he's trying to get across. But Nathan starts, if you remember, by coming to David and he says, David, let me tell you a story. And he, he tells him this story says so there was a man in, in a kingdom who was rich and wealthy and had all kinds of possessions and, and all kinds of cattle and sheep and livestock. I mean, he was set up doing great. And there was another man in this kingdom who was poor and he had but one little sheep that he loved and gave him joy and filled his filled his heart. Now, the rich man needed to make a sacrifice for a certain occasion, but rather than you know, sacrificing one of his own little sheep or cattle, he goes and he takes that poor man's one sheep, all that he had, and he uses that as the sacrifice. Basically destroys this little poor man's life, even though he had so much. You remember David's first response when he hears the story? His first response isn't like, wow, I get it. I go, you're, you're talking about me, right? Man, I blew it. No, his first response is, that man deserves to die. That man in the story is a wicked man, an evil man. How could he do that? He deserves to die. He doesn't, he doesn't see that it's about him. And then Nathan, you remember what Nathan says, the prophet? He says, you're the man. You are the man. This is about you. And it's then that David realizes he has sinned and done great evil before the Lord. And then David says, I have sinned. And the conviction hits him like a ton of bricks. See, you, you can tell the difference, right? Between someone who, you know, comes to church and, you know, goes through the motions and You know, church is cool and they got some, you know, yummy snacks they set out every once in a while and pastor makes some funny jokes and it's good to be here. Um, You can tell a difference between going through the motions and someone who comes and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the difference is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And really there's no becoming a Christian apart from this, right? If we're not convicted of our sin and coming judgment and our need for a savior, we're not gonna turn to the savior. If we, if we don't think we're sick, we're not gonna go to the doctor. So I ask you, have you had a you're the man moment? Or woman? You're the woman moment, we're not leaving you out, ladies. You're the man, you're the woman. Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and need that you might turn and trust in the savior? Now I want you to realize too. It's important we mention that this conviction we're talking about is a gift of God's grace for us. You know, maybe you're here and you're like, "I don't, Pastor. This this is Mother's Day. This is kind of a harsh message. Like you're the man. You're a sinner. You know. And maybe it sounds a little bit pointed." And a little bit heavy. And, and it, it is heavy. But what I want you to see is that it's not uh, because, you know, I'm just angry preacher man or that God is against us and wants to shame us and just uh, leave us there. Uh, this is for our good. It's a gift of God's grace by his spirit that he convicts us. That he opens our eyes. He doesn't do this to shame us and leave us in despair, but that we might turn to him and find life. It's not because he's against us. It's because he's for us. And he wants to call us out of this darkness that we have walked in. It's like the, there's a book that came out, I think it was called The Gift of Pain. Maybe some of you heard of it. And it's a, written by a doctor who worked amongst lepers for a number of years. And he talks about how in, in leprosy, um, you know their limbs and things deteriorate and part of the reason is because uh, they don't have you know, pain sensors there and so they you know, will hit their hand or foot in a door or something and they won't realize it for a while and it will get wounded and infected and you know, go downhill from there and so that's why they end up sort of deformed over a number of years and he points out then what a gift pain is that it's a good thing when you hit your hand against a wall and you feel pain, uh, it's a good thing that you feel pain, so that you can respond appropriately to it, so that you can get the treatment you need, or, or the healing that you need, or treat it right, you, you see what I'm saying? And, and so conviction is, is like that pain, that, that kind of uncomfortable feeling that the Spirit brings into our hearts when we're, you know, uh, morally speaking, you know, slamming our limbs into walls and such. It's a gift that there's pain, that there's uh, the Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts, hey, something is not right, and we need to bring this to the light, that you might be healed and forgiven and come to the Lord. And if that's you and you're having a you're the man moment today, you're sensing that conviction by the Spirit, I encourage you to respond by turning to Jesus in faith, casting yourself upon the mercy of God, and that he's provided forgiveness of sins for you through faith in Jesus. So the Holy Spirit convicts, and there's one other point Jesus makes here in verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So the first point is the Holy Spirit convicts. Uh, second point is the Holy Spirit guides guides us into the truth, Jesus says. Verse 13, he'll guide you into all the truth. Earlier in John 14, right, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will remind the disciples of his teaching. He will teach them. Here he's called the spirit of truth because he leads his people into the truth. Uh, An important qualifier there is in verse 14 as he goes on, he will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So, notice in the text, as we're talking about the Spirit guiding us into truth, this clear connection between the Spirit's ministry of teaching and guiding and the ministry of Jesus right? Verse 14, he will glorify me. Uh, Verse 13, he will not speak on his own, right? The Holy Spirit comes to teach us and guide us into the truth of the gospel, what God is already making known through the work of Christ and his word. So the Spirit is not like over here, Separate from the ministry of Jesus over here, like the Holy Spirit is setting up his own little rival kingdom, doing his own you know spirit things over here, while the ministry of Jesus is left behind over here. No, they're, they they're inseparable. The Holy Spirit is not coming to reveal all these new and and special secrets about the world and setting up again his own little ministry booth at the great ministry fair uh, of sorts. No, his role, his desire, is to align disciples of Jesus with Jesus the King, and the King's ways, and the King's teaching and word. And so we can look to this verse as helpful in understanding how, really, how the New Testament came to be, right? The writings of the apostles as they were carried along, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, to clearly uh, lay down the work and teaching of Christ. We think about how the Holy Spirit even today continues this work of guiding and teaching in the sense of when we come to the scriptures, right? Don't we? Every week we ask for the Lord's help. We don't just jump in and I'm a smart guy and we're, you know, I'm going to figure this out. We, we recognize before scriptures that we need the Spirit's help to discern that he might teach us, guide us into the truth, steer us away from error. Um, more, you know, technically speaking, this is referred to as the doctrine of illumination, which I know sounds like something out of Harry Potter, but it's, it's a biblical idea, the doctrine of illumination, that the Holy Spirit um, enlightens us, illumines the truth of Scripture, enlightens the eyes of our hearts that we might be able to see and discern and understand the things that we read. He will teach us, guide us, give us eyes to see. <clears throat> so we have to see here, again, that the guiding and teaching and ministry of the Holy Spirit is one that continually points us back to the ministry of the Son, the work of Christ and His Word. And, and we, if we make that connection clear and keep it, it'll help us avoid two extremes. And one extreme is being people who uh, seek the Spirit apart from the Word of God. Right? There's kind of trends in, in, in certain you know, Christian or church circles present day, but also throughout history, that, that have a, maybe an unhealthy emphasis on the spirit uh, and lacking emphasis on the word of God and the message of the gospel. And so kind of seeking experiential, fresh insights and kind of new revelation and very emotive and kind of charismatic experiences of the spirit over here. But you, you won't hear much about the cross of Christ and the gospel of Christ crucified and uh, the, the word of God and its authority. And so there's kind of an imbalance there. Um, and then you see kind of the other extreme sometimes where there's a real emphasis on, on doctrine and on, on, you know, on the word of God and, and orthodoxy and very accurate and precise, but kind of missing some of the, uh, the, the heart, I would say, of real personal intimate relationship with God by his spirit, kind of the organic life and presence of the spirit that he does teach us and shape us and, and guide us. And so we have to see the marriage of both word and spirit in scripture, they always go together. And so be wary of you, if you hear or see kind of one without the other. And, and the last thing I'll say is if you're hearing this and you're like, maybe you're, uncon- you're not convinced yet. You're like, I don't know, pastor. This, is, is the Holy Spirit really that important or are we kind of talking too much about him this morning? I want you to hear one, one last thing. And it's at, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus, it's after the resurrection. He's alive again, and he comes to his disciples, and he visits with them. And he, um, it, it says there at the start of chapter 24, that he starts to unpack the scriptures and help the disciples understand the scriptures and how they they pointed to him and so on. And, and then you know he's going to commission them, but he tells them before they go out into all the world, they have to wait. And he basically says, hey, don't do anything yet. Until, basically until the Holy Spirit comes. Until you're clothed with power from God to be his witnesses. So think about that. The resurrection has happened. Jesus is alive. He conquered the grave and he appears to his disciples. I'm alive. And he helps them understand the scriptures. And they're like, this is amazing. And he's going to commission them to go out into all the world. And he says, but wait. You need all of that. But all of that is not enough. You can't go out on your own. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He will go. He will convict the world as you go. He will teach you as you go. He will fill you as you go. So it's the church of God, filled by the spirit of God. Preaching the gospel and the word of God that will be used by God for his mission in the world. Bottom line, don't, don't try this alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the reminders this morning uh, that you have not left us as, as orphans, Jesus says, but you... Um, I've sent your spirit to fill us, to indwell us. Uh, all who trust in you and believe in you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for your help now as we as your church go out into the world. Uh, we want to be people who share the gospel with joy, trusting that you are at work drawing men and women to trust in you and find salvation in you and you alone, Jesus. Pray you fill us with your spirit for that work. We pray that you'd help us be a people marked by uh, your truth, that you, Holy Spirit, would guide us into the truth, direct us away from error and falsehood and lies and the deception of the enemy. Help us look always and only to Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.